This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A bit later in the hour, a look at biofuels research. But first, sometime later this year, a massive particle accelerator known as the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, is scheduled to start operations deep underground of the borders between France and Switzerland. Over 2,000 physicists from 34 countries have been involved in the construction of the LHC, which the theory goes could provide a glimpse of subatomic particles such as the Higgs boson, thought to be responsible for giving matter mass. Experiments might also shed some light about the validity of string theory. But the powerful collisions created in the particle accelerator also have the potential, in theory at least, to create other exotic particles, one called the strangelet, and perhaps even a black hole, both of which uh, would be deadly if created for all living beings on Earth. And that has sparked a lawsuit filed in federal court in Hawaii by seven individuals seeking an injunction against the collider, arguing that it could endanger the planet. Joining me now to talk about the Large Hadron Collider, why physicists are excited about it, what's, uh, what is the status of it coming online, and the safety concerns being raised, is Dr. Frank Wilczek. He's the Herman Feshbeck Professor of Physics at MIT in Cambridge. He's also the 2004 Nobel Laureate in Physics, and one of a group of physicists that in 1999 looked at a similar safety concern being raised at that time about a particle accelerator at uh, Brookhaven National Laboratory in Long Island. He joins us by phone from Oxford. Welcome, Dr. Wilczek. Hello. What, what is the status? So uh, w- some of us thought it would already be online by now or next month. Well, it's an extraordinarily complicated project, and it's amazing that it can be made to work at all. It has many, many moving parts, and it's pushing the edges of technology. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to be patient, but the excitement is building, and uh, we're hoping that the machine will start operation uh, early this fall and, and come on full mm-hmm. speed next year. And, and why are you so excited about this machine? It's going to give us insight at a whole new level into the fundamentals of physics. Um, I've written a whole book about it, which I should plug. Go ahead. Give us the name. <laughs> it's called The Lightness of Being. Mm-hmm mass, ether, and the unification of forces, and it'll be coming out in September, Perseus Books. And uh, it's just the machine we've been waiting for. We have brilliant ideas about uh, what might happen that have just been waiting to be tested. Uh, We have good reason to think that the universe we live in is a vast kind of exotic cosmic superconductor, and we want to see what makes it a superconductor. That's called the Higgs particle, but it's a richer story than just uh, discovering a particle. We have ideas about how to unite the different forces of nature and the different kinds of particles that we observe as the basic building blocks of nature that uh, are very beautiful concepts but need to be uh, tested against experiment. We have ideas about what the dark matter might be. The dark matter that astronomers have discovered uh, makes up much more of the universe by mass than the normal matter we're made of and we understand. Uh, So some of the best ideas about what that dark matter is suggest that it could be something that uh, will be made at the LHC. So uh, there's just a tremendous sense of excitement building that this is the right machine at the right time to 
bring fundamental physics to a new level. Mm -hmm. What will be the first experiments run on it? Look, looking for what? Well, Besides all the calibration, happen at once, really, because uh -huh. uh, the the, the uh, nature of the machine is that it brings together protons at very, very high energy, and uh, so you see what comes out. So. Uh, so you, you smash these pro you smash these right. protons together and you see what yes. literally break it up with a, like a hammer and see what comes out of it. Exactly right, and uh, so all so everything that's there we'll find, and um, all these experiments will be done at the same. All these searches mm -hmm. will be done at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the, talk let's talk about the Higgs boson because you mentioned it, and some, physicists always talk about. Finding this Higgs boson, what is it, and why is it so important to look for it? Well, our theory of uh, the basic electric and weak forces, the so-called electroweak theory, those are two of the four fundamental forces of nature, have as a fundamental component the idea that what we perceive as empty space is not empty at all that it uh, has material properties and that, in fact, it's a kind of exotic superconductor. But unlike for ordinary superconductors, we don't know what makes empty space have the properties it does. Mm -hmm. And so there are hypotheses about what it is, many different hypotheses, uh, but the way we're going to find out for sure is to... Uh, break off little chips of, of this material that we see as ordinarily as empty space and examine them and find out what their properties are. So that goes under the name Higgs boson, and it might be just one new kind of particle that does the job, but I suspect that it's a much richer story and that we'll find that there's a whole world of phenomena connected with this mm -hmm. uh, superconducting property of empty space. Mm -hmm. and, and that brings me to this un this unusual lawsuit I talked about earlier, trying to stop these experiments, thinking that some sort of uh, so one of these crashes of, of particles might create some interesting but deadly particles. One of them being yeah. called a strangelet, it's, yeah. uh, which would which which would eventually convert all of Earth into a large strangelet, huge particle. Right. And or a, a black hole. Or a or a black hole. Uh, you investigate. You investigated the the possibilities of this almost ten years ago. Yes, uh, some of the same people raised the same kinds of issues, and uh, of course, in the scientific literature, these issues, you know, the the underlying uh, phenomena of strangeness or black holes, strangelets or black holes, uh, have been discussed. But I think there are three independent arguments, each of which is decisive, that uh, should reassure everyone about uh, these possibilities. First, nature's already done the experiment. Uh, cosmic rays achieve energies even higher than will be explored at the LHC and have been for billions of years. And so if any of these things were to happen, uh, were to be a physical possibility, it would have happened in the cosmos. And its effects would have been visible. Uh, secondly, we have a sociological argument. As you mentioned, thousands of people work on the LHC project, 
and have worked in the, the basic subject of high energy physics and accelerators. And those people have families, they have love of life. Uh, if they had perceived uh, the slightest danger uh, of this kind, if they thought it was plausible, uh, they would be screaming about it. You know, this, this, the idea that uh, there's a vast conspiracy involving thousands of scientists to hush up some problem is just kind of crazy on its face. And then finally, uh, some of us sort of were designated to be the the B team or the red squad and try to find out, try to really think about how conceivably, you know, just use your imagination, try to make everything in a worst case scenario, how conceivably uh, dangers could arise. And uh, I and my colleagues really took that as a challenge. You know, we love that kind of challenge. Use our imagination, see what what you can dream up. And uh, even doing our best, we couldn't come up with any uh, mm. scenario, any mechanism that made sense uh, that would suggest that there was a serious danger. Mm -hmm. So uh, you just think this is it's just something, an old argument that's reared its head again. Yeah, and, and based on misunderstandings and uh, you know, sort of... Uh, taking words out of context. Mm. Uh, I only have a short time left, Dr. Wilczek. Can you give us some idea when you think the Hadron Collider might be powering up? Should we look out at certain dates? Well, it's, it's, it's a matter of months, not years. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, test runs are due to commence in the late summer or early fall, and then mm -hmm. it should come up to full energy Mm -hmm. uh, starting next year. Now, I, as someone who likes to think about all possibilities of things, what happens if you turn it on you, and you don't see any of these things that you were hoping <laughs> to see? Well, that would be interesting, too, because it would show that uh, our understanding of the world is fundamentally flawed. Because, uh, as I said, our basic theory of the uh, forces we know about is based on the idea that empty space has a lot of structure, and we'd better be able to probe that structure. I mean, that structure, if it exists, will be probed by this machine. And so uh, the biggest surprise would be for nothing to happen. I, I just, it, it would be um, a real shock to the system and send us back to the drawing board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, this, and this will be the biggest machine for some time to come. There's nothing. Yes, this is the machine we've been waiting for. Uh, the superconducting supercollider was on schedule for the United States, but got canceled. That would have been a comparable machine. Uh, this is this is the one we've been waiting for. That it, it's the right machine at the right time, or maybe actually too late, a little late. <laughs> uh, but it's it's it the it's going to test uh, very exciting ideas for the first time, and so. Uh, it's a thrilling prospect for fundamental physics. Yeah, we'll all be watching it closely. We've, we've been talking about this for over 10 years on Science Friday, so yeah, waiting for that. The ideas have been waiting, so it's time <laughs> to experiment to catch up with theory. Dr. Wilczek, thank you for staying up right. for us tonight. Right, right. Bye-bye. And have a good weekend, Dr. Frank Wilczek, who is the 2004 Nobel Laureate in Physics and Professor of Physics at MIT and author, I guess, an upcoming book called The Lightness of Being, which will be out in September. We'll have him back to talk about it. Stay with us. We're going to take a short break. 
Talk about uh, some interesting and intriguing new research into biofuels. You know, people love, they, they loved it first. Now we're wondering whether it's worth all this effort because it eats up a lot of food, drives up the price of grain. Some people are thinking about new ways of, uh, of creating biofuels that may not be as, as uh, expensive and, and energy-consuming. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Ira Flato. This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday from NPR News. You're listening to Talk of the Nation Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato, and for the rest of the hour, we're going to be looking at biofuels research using plant material to produce energy. And while a lot of attention has been focused on ethanol from corn or on growing crops for oil that can be converted to biodiesel, the, the competition between grain for food and grain for fuel has led to skyrocketing grain prices and food that is uh, made out of them. If you've, been, if you've seen the $1 bagel, you know what we're talking about here in New York. This week at the American Chemical Society meeting in New Orleans, plenty of attention was being paid to plant-based fuels and research on new and unique methods of turning plants into fuel were uh, being presented there. And this hour we'll be talking about those as well as other new research into biofuels and joining me now to help sort it out sort through it all sort of judge immediately whether it's going to be a great success or not we know we can't do that very well but it's kind of fun to do that nathaniel green he's senior policy analyst at the nrdc focusing on biofuels and energy policy he's written and blogged extensively about biofuels and he's here with us in our new studios uh, welcome to the program in the new york studio Thanks for having me, Ira. You're, you're welcome. That's a pretty active area of research, isn't it? I mean, suddenly we're seeing it everywhere. It's really amazing. In the last two years, there's just been an incredible explosion of research into this, driven in part by oil prices, in part by federal policy. Um, uh, and it's really moved from the public sector into the private sector, which has mm-hmm. uh, made it very exciting. If I, re- if I read your blog correctly, you don't believe that there's any one solution. Right, to the to the energy and the That's right. global warming problem. Yeah, I mean, well, certainly when you start with the, the really big problems like global warming or f- global hunger, uh, there's, you need a lot of solutions. These are big problems. They're not. There's no silver bullet. The best we can sort of bring silver buckshot buckshot to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, if you start from the ground up and thinking about biofuels as one possible solution. Different crops are going to be better in different parts of the world. So, yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of different solutions. All right, let's get right to this, uh, the, the trifecta of new research we have to talk about today. I'm going to bring on uh, Marion Strickland. She's professor in the Department of Crop and Soil uh, Stickland at uh, Crop and Soil Sciences at Michigan State University in East Lansing. Dr. Strickland presented the paper this week at the American Chemical Society meeting at looking at a way to make it easier to get fuels like ethanol from woody stalks of plants. And she came up with something really interesting. She uh, joins us by phone from New Orleans, where the meeting is wrapping up. Uh, Dr. Stickland, welcome to Science Friday. Thank you. Now, well, uh, let me see if I can sum it up concisely. You have genetically engineered enzymes into plants that allow the plants to, to do what? Well, the enzyme, let, let me step back and explain where, where the enzyme comes from. The best natural biofactory for biofuel is in cow's stomach. Mm-hmm. Cow eats this grass, basically silage or whatsoever, and cow has in its second stomach has microbes 
that the microbes that they don't require oxygen, we call them anaerobic, they convert, this microbes have genes, which produces an enzyme, and that enzyme converts the fiber uh, of the plant into fermentable sugar. Some of this sugar would go for energy for cow, and in fact, some of it goes forwarded to the digestive system of cow and turned into alcohol fuel. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is where the idea came from, taking the genes from the microbe that lives in cow's second stomach and putting the gene into corn silage, corn, and producing the enzyme within the corn biomass not in the seeds, not in the pollens, not in the roots, but only in the leaves and the stems. So you could eat the corn like you normally would, and the enzyme would break down the woody fibrous stalk into sugars that you could ferment into alcohol, basically, right? That's, that's correct. So you've, that's you've correct. used the whole plant up, and you still have food to begin with, and you have used up the, the stalk that would, that would be wasted in this well, case. Absolutely. And, and we hope that our technology would bring the price of ethanol dramatically down. Have you actually grown co- this corn? We have the second generation that is in getting ready to produce third generation seeds. And, 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 you've, and it's worked out just the way you thought it would? Uh, we compared our enzyme that is produced within the plant with commercial enzyme produced in bioreactors. Identical, the results are identical, is as efficient and it does the conversion beautifully. So this is like this is a step towards cellulosic ethanol that we be, we've been hearing about. It is. This is not corn ethanol. This is not corn seeds or corn starch. Mm-hmm. This is cellulosic ethanol from corn. Nathaniel Green, what's wrong with this? Well, I, mean, I think the the area of, of research is incredibly important. How do you know, how do we both get at the cellulosic part of plants, and then how do we um, break it down and, and turn it into fuels? Uh, and biological conversion is a very promising way. A lot of microbes, animals, insects do this, and so we do need to learn from them. Obviously, we have to be careful both because whenever you put a genetically modified crop in the field, you want to make sure that you're really taking all the steps necessary to preserve the rest of our, bio- our biodiversity. You really want to make sure you're not turning plants into something that can digest themselves, and obviously mm-hmm. that's a, a major concern. Um, and then the other part of the, that we need to be careful about is that the stalks and stems of corn plants aren't all waste. They're very important for the nutrient cycle, for protecting the soil. So there's going to be you know, important ecological considerations as we move forward here, but this is mm-hmm. important stuff. Doc- Dr. St- uh, Stickland, have you thought about these issues? Yes, indeed. That, that those are very important issues. The first part is, yes, in order to have this enzyme produced within the crop IMS, inside the cell, but away from the cell wall where the cellulosic fiber is, we lock in the enzyme inside vacuole, which is the garbage can of cell. As plant gets older, as it gets close to the harvest time, the vacuole gets larger and larger, and in fact gets to a point that when we look under microscope, about 80%, 85% of plant cell is made of vacuole. As this enzyme starts being accumulated in the vacuole, by the time that you harvest the corn, most of the cell is filled up with this enzyme. 
away from the cell wall. So it's not self-degrading the plant until you start grinding the material. The second part, which was rightly um, explained, was that are we going to take all of this corn away from soil? No, we do need carbon reserve of the soil kept. A minimum of one-third of corn I would like to be kept that farmers would keep in the soil, what we call it carbon sequestration. Make sure that we're not taking nutrient out of soil. Mm-hmm. How do, and how do we make sure that this gene does not escape to, into other plants we, where we may not want it to be? Excellent question also. Corn doesn't have many relatives, especially in, in the United States. In Mexico, there are some white relatives. The gene that, that we put in the plant is, uh, is everywhere, and gene is not really what we worry about. It's always the enzyme which is produced whether this enzyme is going to go to cereal or not, or go to another crop or not eventually. Uh, the, 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 the process we have is it's producing the gene everywhere, obviously, but the enzyme is only produced where the tissue is green or has been green, which includes leaves and stems of plants, and not in the seeds, not in pollen grains, and in fact not in roots. Mm-hmm. Wow, it sounds, it's, it sounds like a perfect sort of system here. We hope so. How, how soon could we see the product of this? Well, the patent is in place. Michigan State University is ready for company. In fact, I believe there are some companies that already sent proposals to Michigan State University. That's out of my hand. That's different office. Handles the intellectual property right. If mm. industries are interested, call Michigan State University <laughs> to intellectual property right. So you're saying that, and if I read you right, it sounds like you could still eat the corn because you have the corn on the cob. You could eat that and, or give it to animals and still left have enough left over to make a significant amount of biofuels from the stalks. Correct. If worse gets worse, somebody wants to feed the animal with the, with, the, with the leaves material, with the stalk, what happens? It already has the enzyme that... The livestock has its own stomach. Mm-hmm. It's natural enzyme from cow's second stomach. Let me go to Ed in Merced, California. Hi, Ed. Hey, how are you doing? Hi, Turn on the radio. Okay, hey, the problem is we, uh, we already feed the, stock, the, the crop residue, the stalks and the leaves, to the animals. That's where we get our milk. In fact, uh, feed has been going through the roof, so milk's been going through the roof. My, the problem is, yes, we need to grow more corn, but in order to grow corn, you've got to have water, and you've got to have lots of fertilizer. It takes a lot of both. That's the problem. And fertilizer right now is through the roof. So, yeah, we can grow the corn as long as we have the water and as long as we have the, uh, the means to, to get the nitrogen in the ground and the other nutrients. So I think it's beautiful that we're making uh, different uh, uh, fuels from uh, these... Uh, these materials and and yes there is no one reason and cellulosic ethanol i believe i've been following the iogen corporation in canada they've uh, got some patents going and they i don't know they have a bunch of research partners in the u.s but they've been uh they've been working with uh people on uh cellulosic ethanol for years now i think we've got an easier way here they're having a little problem scaling up but we'll, we'll watch it thanks ed for calling yeah one, one other thing the main problem is reduce and stabilize the human population. All right. There you have it. Uh, uh, any, any comments, Doctor? Dr. Stickland? Yes, Dr. Stickland. 
Very good. Well, let, let me uh, uh, get back to the gentleman's first concern, which is uh, if we are going to grow more corn, we need more water and more fertilizer. Well, we also need more, more agronomic uh, land. Uh, yes, we do. But w- when it gets to corn residues, we're not talking about corn seeds. We're talking about corn residues. We're talking about corn waste. Right. Today, we are wasting tons and tons of corn residues every year. Mm-hmm. All right, Dr. Stickland, yes. that we could, that you that your method now could turn into into alcohol. Absolutely, we don't have to grow more corn. Yeah. In fact, the technology we have, we have tried it. The technology worked with rice straw. Straw also. It rice straw, rice straw all around the world. Fifty percent of agronomic biomass from crops around the world is rice straw. What did they do with this rice straw? They burned them and create health problem, including asthma. Could you could you also in, engineer it into other woody plants? Absolutely. You know, like the willow plant. and poplar and things like sure, that. Sure, poplar, sugar cane. Right. Uh, just name it. Right. Wheat straw, switchgrass, miscanthus. It could be the technology is the same. Well, thank you very much. We'll, we'll, we'll be following your research, Dr. Stickland. My thank pleasure. you very much. My pleasure. Have a good weekend. Miriam Stickland is professor in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences at uh, Michigan State University and in East Lansing. Well, well, let me just remind everybody that I'm Ira Flato, and this is Talk of the Nation Science Friday from NPR News. That almost sounds too good to be true. <laughs> well, I think she put her fingers on a few really important challenges there, right? And, yeah. and not that she glossed over them, but um, you can use this technology in a, a responsible way, probably. Is the market necessarily going to do that if we just leave it to its own whims? Will people only will people leave one third of the the uh, corn stover on the field? Will people do the right testing to make sure that this gene is going to stay there? That you know, when the wind blows and the pl- plant gets h- harvested, it's not going to start spilling its enzyme all over the place. All these questions. If we just leave it to the marketplace, uh, mm-hmm. I have very little faith that those things will be taken care of. We need the right regulations, right policies to drive the market to use this sort of stuff responsibly. All right. Let's move on to our next uh, second uh, second professor, and he is George Huber. He's an assistant professor of chemical engineering at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. He has an article published in the journal Chemistry and Sustainability, Energy and Materials, that looks at using biomass to create something like gasoline. He joins us by phone from Amherst to talk about it. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ira. Thank you for having me on your program. You're welcome. Uh, Now let me see if I can sum up your process. You start with cellulose. Um, uh, You have a catalyst and heat. You you do it for me. Okay. The the beauty of our process is the simplicity of it. (laughs) Uh, We're we're trying to make fuels. Fuels are a commodity produced uh, on the large scale, and you have to produce them very uh, efficiently and economically. In our process, we take the biomass, we heat it up to about 600 degrees Celsius. The biomass decomposes to these oxygenated compounds, which then enters into our, uh, our catalyst, which is a zillite-type uh, catalyst. And then we make uh, gasoline-range aromatics, CO, CO2, and water. Wow. And you can, can you run a, a car or something on these products? The, 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 the products we're making have an octane rating of about 110. Uh, so they have a very high octane rating, uh, and and part, some of the compounds we're making are already found in gasoline. You blend, 
Gasoline contains up to 25 weight percent aromatics. So you're saying basically you could take waste products like, you know, stocks we were talking about before with some enzymes and some heat. You no, could, no enzymes. No enzymes. Catalyst. Just a cat. Oh, it's a catalyst. That's, yeah, I'm enzymes sorry. Yeah. Can only, you can only work with enzymes at low temperatures like right. 30, 40 degrees Celsius. And you have to you have to heat these up very to a high temperature of 600 degrees Celsius, you said? That's exactly right. Uh, does that put more heat in than energy that you get out? No, because you burn, in our process, you would burn part of the biomass to, to heat it up. You have to burn, it, it depends on how wet your biomass is. If your biomass is bone dry, you have to yeah. burn about 10% of the biomass to heat it up. And so how did this, does this stack up to making ethanol in the old-fashioned way? Well, well the, the, the advantage, ethanol, you have about four or five steps. It's a very complicated process, uh, and ours, we're doing those in one single step. Uh, you know, we're making a, mm -hmm. a, a liquid fuel in one single step that fits into existing infrastructure. Uh, there's a huge capital investment that goes into making ethanol. We project that ours would be a lot, uh, a, a lot less. Uh, we're also using a lot cheaper catalyst. A lot of these enzymes, uh, you're looking at about 50 cents per gallon of ethanol just to pay for the cost of your enzymes. Our catalysts are catalysts that are already used in the petroleum industry. Uh, so the catalyst we, we, we use today is already mass-produced. It's already used to refine uh, gasoline. Wow. Wow. Any comment? Well, i, I got to say I'm, I'm not at all surprised to see some uh, real research and breakthroughs happening in this area because ethanol is, uh, while it is basically compatible with our existing infrastructure, it's not easily compatible with that infrastructure. You need tweaks to our cars, tweaks to our pipes, tweaks to our holding tanks. All of that adds up when you try to think about the scale of our 140 billion gallon a year gasoline infrastructure mm -hmm. to a lot of money that the oil companies are, are looking at if they really have to be uh, replacing gasoline. And so uh, they've got a big financial incentive to make this sort of stuff work. All right. We're going to take a short break. Uh, stay with us, Dr. Huber, uh, through the break. Uh, also, Nathaniel, stay, hang in here. We're going to come back, talk lots more about uh, alternative energies and some uh, interesting new ideas we're covering this week. 1-800-989-8255. Also on Second Life, you can go to our, our spot and look for Science Friday and have your avatar ask questions, too. So stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Ira Flato. This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday from NPR News. You're listening to Talk of the Nation Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking this hour about uh, new biofuel technologies uh, with my guest in the studio, Nathaniel Green. Uh, he's a senior policy analyst at the NRDC and focusing on biofuels and energy policy. Also with me is George Huber, who is assistant professor of chemical engineering at University of Massachusetts in Amherst. And he has an article that talks about using a catalyst on the, with cellulose to produce gasoline sort of product materials. Let's go to uh, the phones to Ralph in St. Louis. Hi, Ralph. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks Hi. for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to ask uh, about animal waste. Uh, there's a, uh, companies in Germany I know that are using animal waste, uh, say pig droppings and that, to create um, natural gas mm -hmm. uh, that it can be used to... Um, cook food and other other uh, applications. And there's a company in St. Louis called Aura Renewable Energies. Uh, is this viable? And one other question. Is one of the uh, plant alternatives hemp that they have still outlawed? Is hemp is still outlawed, right? It's still, it is. It's still. Yes. Uh, let me ask you, George, what about using animal waste in your process? 
you, you could potentially use animal waste. The, the problem is just the limited availability of animal waste. Uh, actually, ConocoPhillips signed an agreement with Tyson uh, to process their animal waste in their petroleum refinery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so really, people are already starting to use the, the, the animal waste already to make fuels, but there's just a limited amount. Really, it's the woody biomass that has the huge potential. Mm-hmm. And what's left over? You said there was some CO2 produced. Is that good? You have to, all biofuel processes from cellulosic biomass produce. You make the fuel plus CO2 and water. You make ethanol, you're also making CO2 as well. Mm-hmm. That, that's how the chemistry works out. Mm-hmm. And how close are you to uh, actually making a product here or, or selling your idea? Well, we're, we're, we're working with a company, Cure, K-I-O-R. That's uh, one of Coastal Ventures' newest company. Uh, and we're in discussion with them about uh, licensing our technology. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's a very exciting time to be in this field. There's there's advances happening daily. Uh, really, we have a lot of new scientific tools and chemistry, uh, quantum chemical calculation, nanotechnology, and really the enabling sciences, catalysis, and chemical engineering mm-hmm. that will help us move this field, move this biocellulosic biofuels forward. Anything where are you, Nathaniel? Well, again, I think this makes a ton of financial sense. Um, And again, I just go back to the idea that uh, there's going to be increasingly no shortage of uh, smart tools out there, and it's going to be a question of whether or not we are smart enough to use them in the best possible way. And that that brings a question from Second Life from Alex Eisenhardt who says, what about habit destruction from planting corn, things like that, and loss of species? You know, there's there's a lot of attention right now on food feedstocks because our energy prices have been going up, world demand for food has been going up, and obviously uh, you add on top of that uh, the demand for food feedstocks to make fuels, and you have a, a really sort of crisis situation around food. But the reality is that we can also grow uh, cellulosic feedstocks in really smart ways or really dumb ways. We can go chop down our forests for, for cellulose, or we can use marginal lands, mm-hmm. use the residues in just the right way. So all these challenges of being smart about how we do this uh, are as much present with these next-generation technologies, really, as they are with our current technologies. Uh, Dr. Ira, yes. I mean, woody biomass has a huge potential as, as biofuels. There's a lot of myths about it. If you take a forest in Massachusetts and you manage it, you can produce twice as much biomass as an unmanaged forest. So that's just from the forestry mm-hmm. land. And, you know, some of these people who like to criticize biofuels, it's kind of like people criticizing the automobiles and comparing automobiles to horses and saying that horses were better around the, you know, the, the, the early 1900s and the automobiles would never make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think woody biomass just has a huge potential. We just don't have the technology to efficiently convert it into a fuel yet. Yeah. Um, and, and in your technology, are you looking at this as then as a gasoline octane booster additive first off? Well, you, you could either use it as, or you could, as an octane booster, you could blend it with gasoline or you could convert it into, uh, completely into gasoline as well. You could. And how, much, how, how many more steps would that require? That, that would require another step, just a hydrogenation step and a blending step. So you're pretty close to gasoline already, you're saying, when you... We, we're making a lot of the components already found in gasoline. Gasoline is a very complicated mixture of compounds. Diesel fuel is even more complicated. Uh, actually, we only know 90% of the compounds that are found in diesel fuel today. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Huber, and good luck to you. Thank you, Ira. George Huber is Assistant Professor of Chemical Engineering at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, and 
He had this article published in the Journal of Chemistry and Sustainability, Energy, and Materials. Now we're going to move on to our third in, in trifecta of energy uh, alternatives and biofuels, and this is Percival Zhang. He is an assistant professor of engineering in uh, Biological Systems Engineering Department at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia, and he's presenting work this week at the Chemical Society meeting, which is a recipe for making hydrogen, biofuels producing hydrogen. And it's really simple. You take a whole bunch of enzymes, I think 13 if I'm not incorrect, and I'll ask him, and you add starch and water and out comes hydrogen gas. Is that correct, Dr. Zhang? And uh, as you see, I work on the Sanlosca at no more than 12 years already. <laughs> so, but recently I just switched my research direction because I realized like Sanlosca ethanol is second generation fuel. It's very good. We can bend with gasoline very easily. But big challenge for Sanlosca ethanol is we don't have enough resource now because DOE talk about replace 30% transportation fuel from the biofuel, from the biomass, like Sanlosca ethanol. We don't talk about anything from the food. But in long term, we should think about it. We still need to produce enough transportation energy from the biomass. How to do it? The, the smartest way is we should go to hydrogen. Hydrogen. And, and you're saying you have a very, let me see if I described it right correctly, you have a very simple recipe. You take enzymes, you add starch and water, and out comes hydrogen gas bubbling. Yes. So this is the first experiment. So the next experiment, we will produce hydrogen from the cellulose. So we call cellulose hydrogen. So that means we have a chance to solve whole transportation you can, uh, fuel problem. So you, you, you can do this with cellulosic yes, material. materials and, and out comes hydrogen. hydrogen. Always hydrogen. Hydrogen plus carbon dioxide. So you don't have to put any energy into the system. The energy is from the sugar. Huh. So we use energy in the sugar break up water. Right, and that's what the that's what that's what the catalysts do. Yes, and also the whole reaction at a low temperature because we use enzyme. Enzyme will die at a high temperature and a low pressure, so we don't need a high pressure container. We just use one atmospheric pressure and the plus thirteen enzyme. So, so enzyme you, do everything for you. Wow, wow, Nathaniel, what do you think of that one? Well, I mean, it's it's a really important idea, right? Because if we use hydrogen to make electricity on board a vehicle. It's a dramatically more efficient way to drive our cars, mm -hmm. and that's why plug-in hybrids are such an important part of the, the mix of technologies to solve global warming. Um, obviously, starting with starch uh, it, it is an imperfect starting point because that's a, a food crop uh, or food stuff. So if he can really make the cellulosic part of this work, uh, he's overcoming – he's moving away to a much more abundant material – uh, he's dealing with one of the greatest challenges with hydrogen, which is the getting the density of storage on board a vehicle and getting us towards a much more efficient car. So that's a pretty exciting mix. So, but we should emphasize: we talk all technology. We just not for production. We also claim we solve problem for hydrogen storage. You have yes. In what way? The way is very easy. We use the sugar as a hydrogen carrier. So that means put the sugar in your car, and then on board convert to hydrogen. Then supply hydrogen to fuel cell. We don't storage hydrogen anymore. So you put the sugar in, in the car. Yes. And today, a lot of people do that for other reasons. But but <laughs> but uh, but this would be a good way to to use sugar in your car, and you wouldn't have to carry the hydrogen around. You would just carry the feed that creates the hydrogen. Yes. And uh, also, if you calculate uh, energy density for sugar, that means fourteen point eight mass percentage. It's uh, much much higher than DOE requirement for long term. <laughs> 
And, and water means, is an important part of what you have to have in your tank too, right? Yes, water is regenerated, recycled from the fuel cell. So you you basically would add all the ingredients into the tank, and it would sit there and produce bub- and bubble out hydrogen, or th- and then you would use that in the in let's say a fuel cell in the car. Yes, and the fuel cell will produce electricity plus water, so you can send water back to reaction reactor, so you can recycle water. Wow, how far have you gotten on this? And the, the big challenge for our case is the reaction rate is still too slow. So that means we cannot generate enough energy to drive vehicle. But we believe based on available technology, we can increase the reaction rate greatly. So you're going to get more bubbles coming out. Yes. Yeah, and, and so it's going very, it produces hydrogen at a slow rate. How do you think you can improve that? And uh, there are so many technologies. The most important technology is metabolic engineering. Because we know the whole process involves certain enzymes. So they means build a reaction network, but some enzyme is a rate-limited step. Mm-hmm. So we can use a mathematical model, do simulation to understand which step is a rate-limited step. Mm-hmm. So we can add more enzyme for this step to speed up reaction rate. So you get better, you get better enzymes that make more efficient hydrogen. Yes. Can you actually do a demonstration vehicle? Could you drive around with, in a car and with a fuel uh, cell? Sure. You're throwing sugar and, and water in it? And, and I'm sure, and uh, after several years, we will do the first demonstration because now big problem for us is uh, we cannot get enough research money to do everything as we like. So we just focus on what is most important things. Mm-hmm. Right. So, well, but so- I say one technology is to use modeling to simulate. Right. The other technology is to try to increase the reaction temperature. Well, thank, thank you very much, Dr. Zhang, and good luck to you. The Percival Zang, Assistant Professor of Engineering in the Biological Systems Engineering Department at Virginia Tech, uh, Nathaniel, talking about hydrogen. It's got to be the most novel thing we've heard so far, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's not totally surprising, right, because carbohydrates, the pl- stuff of plant matter, it has hydrogen in it. So people have talked uh, for a long time about uh, using biomass to get hydrogen. What he's doing, though, is different, right, because he's just using the biomass to feed, basically feed the enzymes. And then they're using the hydrogen in the water. So it is a definitely a pretty novel idea. You know, almost every week there's another. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing. There's right. another. Someone has thought of something. And some of these are the most simple ideas. Right. They don't require great chemistry here. They're going. Some people are using the, uh, like we see the enzymes in cows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's no great. And people all are just the, thinking about it. All the brains that are have been thinking about how to turn petroleum into all sorts of fancy chemicals, all sorts of fuels. A lot of that knowledge is starting to seep into this area. Uh, you know, fundamentally, it's driven largely by $100 a barrel oil, certainly, but also our policies. And uh, it is really exciting. The real question is we, we need to make this transition away from the current technologies into these mm-hmm. better technologies. We need to do it really fast. Can we also make sure we do it really smart? And, and do we need, as you say, we don't really need to use any single one of them. We could have a combination. Sure. You want to you wanna be able to use the right type of feedstock in the right, type of, right part of the world mm-hmm. so that you're growing a crop that's good for the local environment. Let's see if we can get a call in quickly before we have to go. Nadine in Louisville. Hi, Nadine. Uh- Hi. Um, yeah, I had a, a quick question uh, regarding um, the obstacles in policy. You know, like, are there oil lobbyists or something that prevent alternative energies like biofuel and hydrogen fuel from uh, progressing further? Nathaniel, that's right up your alley. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's a great question. Thank you. Um, and the answer is sure. Absolutely. The oil industry is 
wants this to a whole sector to go slowly so they can adapt and figure out how they're going to integrate it. It's not, I think, that they're totally opposed to it. I just think they really don't want to be forced to do anything that they're not 100% ready for. Um, also, you know, there's, there's problems on every side, really. Agriculture doesn't want to be told how to grow its crops. Uh, environmentalists, often we really want the, the perfect solution. We have to uh, find a workable middle ground here so we can mm-hmm. get this technology out there fast but get it out there in a smart way. This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday from NPR News. I'm Ira Plato talking uh, about alternative uh, fuels this hour. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about uh, the possible integration, I guess, right, of biofuels, doing it the right way yeah. and which ones will work and um, and it's funny because we're seeing the old industries, we're seeing car companies now trying to get into the fuel mm-hmm. business, aren't yep. we? Yeah. You know? <laughs> GM invested in in Cascada as one of the, the new companies. Uh, obviously, they did a sort of big PR stunt, but this is the first time they put some money on the table in an interesting way. Uh, oil companies, all of them have some amount of research uh, or development or even uh, financial investments in the sector. Mm-hmm. So everyone, you know, I think a lot of that's just driven by, again, by $100 barrel oil. Uh, the question is, uh, our policies to date are really pretty blunt. They're basically about getting more, 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 more gallons, more gallons of biofuels. And now we've got to figure out how to do it better. And we've got to t- figure out how to tell the market, you know, get on the green and narrow and stay there. Well, you have to figure out how we're not going to starve ourselves at the exactly. same, same time as we Absolutely. You know, as we've we got to solve global warming. We've got to solve global hunger. And we've got to do it smart. And we have to figure, yeah, we have to figure out can, what is the mix, you know, what is the mix of, of growing crops or grow, should we grow more woody things that don't make food? Well, or the, should we be able to use more of the waste material? And if these, if any of these three that we talked about today bear, you know, bear fruit? Yeah, we absolutely need to be moving away from using food crops. Food is just too valuable for food. Uh, yeah. We need to figure out how to use these waste crops. Uh, we really need to figure out, though, how to get wins that are across the board. We can't just be solving a little mm. bit of a problem over here. When you say we, who is who is the we? Is there any direction? It's almost, you know, everybody's on their own here. It's almost like the land rush days. It, it, Stake your claim in this thing. It's, yeah, and, you know, there's a real uh, problem here with the sort of extreme extreme uh, uh, enthusiasm on the that sort of set us off in this direction and now sort of extreme backlash that just wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. And some, a lot of people are just saying, no, 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 say no to biofuels. We have to chart this sort of middle course here because, again, we need solutions to global hunger. We need solutions to global warming. Uh, and so we have to figure out these technologies that can help us get more of everything. Well, we're going to be, we, we love these alternative energy solutions. So we're going to stay in the alternative energy watch for, as, as, it's a lot of fun. You know, a lot, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to watch people thinking of new solutions. It is. Thank you very much. We'll have you back to talk more about it. Nathaniel Green, Senior Policy Analyst at the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, focusing on biofuels and energy policy. Thanks for being with us here. In Thanks New York. for having me. Our program is produced by Karen Vergoth and senior producer Annette Heist. Charles Breckwist is our director. Flora Lichtman is our producer for digital media. Schumann Ma, our Metcalf fellow. Josh Rogerson, our technical director and at the controls here at the helm here in New York. We also had help in Second Life from Lynn Collins, Dave Andrews, Jeff Corbin at the University of Denver. If you'd like to hang around Second Life for a while, the avatars are there. You can talk and have a great conversation about what we're talking about on Science Friday, or you could go over to our website at sciencefriday.com where we're podcasting and blogging and uh, looking for your videos. Send us your videos. Maybe you uh, produce some of these 
uh, different kinds of biofuels. You'd like to show us how you do it. Any of our guests, send, send us a video of how you do it, and we'll put it on our, our, our video list. I have dozens of videos up there now. I'm Ira Flato in New York. This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday. I am Ira Flato. A bit later in the hour, we'll be talking about open access to biomedical research and children and sleep. But up first, poor quality soil. It's a problem for farmers around the world. Dirt stripped of nutrients by years of over-farming and chemical fertilizers. Well, this week, there's new evidence that an old farming practice traced back at least 1,500 years to tribes in the Amazon basin can give new life to nutrient-poor dirt. It's called black gold agriculture. The idea is really simple. You add charcoal from burned organic matter to the soil, and the dirt holds on to nutrients and produces Lots more crops. This week, scientists at the American Chemical Society meeting presented the results of a controlled study of black gold architect, uh, agriculture, and they found that fertilizing with charcoal produced more crops and captured carbon from the air right out of the CO2. So the practice could also combat global warming. Sounds too simple, too good to be true. We're going to talk about it. Our number is 1-800-989-8255, 1-800-989-TALK. Ming Zingua is an assistant professor in the Agriculture and Natural Resources Department at Delaware State University in Dover. He joins us today by phone from his office. Welcome to the program. Hi. How do, how do, how do I pronounce your name? Ming Zingua. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> close. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the first one who, who's had some trouble with it, but thank you for, 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 for pronouncing it for me. Uh, let's talk about poor quality soil, a big problem around the world. Why is that? Uh, yes, so... Deterioration and quality degradation is a severe and worldwide problem, and it is expressed as soil compaction, poor tilth, surface crusting, slow water seepage, low water retention, low nutrients, and low nutrient retention, and also decreasing crop productivity. <laughs> this problem is mainly caused by long-term chemical fertilizer application and uh, mechanical tillage. The mm-hmm. level of organic matter determines the quality of a soil. And so, so good soils have high organic matter content, say 6 to 15%. Right. But the soil plowing makes the organic matter decompose quickly, while chemical fertilization doesn't encourage any external organic matter addition. So year after year, farmland soils become low in organic matter, and the quality turns poor. So currently, most farmland soils have organic matter content lower than 3%. So what does adding charcoal to the soil, why does it make it a better fertilizer? Uh, Charcoal is a fine-grained, porous black carbon, and it is generated from plant materials 
and it is non-toxic to plants. So there, there are many tiny pores in charcoal. So once applied to soil, the pores will allow air to diffuse into soil. Plant roots need the air to breathe. And in the meanwhile, the tiny pores will hold water and nutrients and later supply to plants. More important, unlike other organic fertilizers, charcoal is very stable and it will not decompose to carbon dioxide. So once applied, it will stay in soil for hundreds to thousands of years. So to summarize, the high stability and porosity make charcoal a better fertilizer than other organic materials. And you've actually conducted tests showing this. Yes. Wow. Let's get uh, number 1-800-989-8255. Let's go to Bob in Cleveland. Hi, Bob. Hi. Hey, how you doing? Um, yeah, I have a question. Um, now, if, if I wanted to do this in my backyard where I have a garden, could I just buy a bag of, you know, like charcoal that they use, you know, when they barbecue something and add it to the soil? And, you know, what what kind of quantity would I add? Or what about the ash that's left over, too? That's a good question. Uh, Dr. Gao, could he yes. just buy a bag of charcoal? And- uh, uh, theoretically, you can buy some charcoal uh, directly from a supermarket and grind it into uh, small greens and apply it to the soil. And make sure you incorporate uh, the charcoal uh, into soil while uh, by plowing. And typically speaking, uh, we recommend that 5% uh, of the charcoal to be mixed with the top 20 centimeter of soil. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, if the soil bulk density is 1.4 uh, tons per cubic meter, and uh, uh, according to that, probably uh, you should uh, uh, you should calculate that surf, uh, according to the surface area, uh, or uh, I mean, co- according to the size of your garden, and calculate how much charcoal is needed. But generally speaking, five percent is good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also, you you were talking about the fact that the charcoal will uh, will uh, is it absorb or adsorb the CO2? Uh, I should say it's a mix of absorb and adsorb. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, uh, it's a mixture, and we are, we cannot distinguish uh, the two terms. Yeah. Uh, it is either physical uh, adsorption or chemical absorption. Could, could and, and the fact that it can absorb uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. Oh, yes. Uh, it is called, a, in that sense, it's not a absorption. Actually, probably you know that... Uh, the original uh, uh, absorption of uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is uh, carried out by plants through right. photosynthesis. Right. But uh, when plants die, uh, the biomass will be decomposed quickly by microorganisms and release carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Right. And, but once the biomass is converted to charcoal, and at least 50% of the carbon will be permanently fixed in that material, and it is resistant to microbial and chemical degradation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that part of uh, uh, carbon will be in, uh, 
will stay in the organic form and won't be released uh, as carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So you could take all the all the tree leaves and the corn stalks and the wood chips and turn them into charcoal and lock up a lot of that carbon in the charcoal and create a great fertilizer at the same time. Yes. Uh, theoretically, all organic residues and wastes, including the grasses, crop residues, uh, animal manure, and yard trimmings, and even, you know, some leftover from the kitchen. Wow. You know, people would say, but you have to burn the stuff to make charcoal. Does that not release CO2 back into the atmosphere? Uh, uh, it, uh, the, the burning process, actually, it, it is not a, a real burning process because uh, the, the, the materials are packed in a closed container and heated uh, at a, a relatively high temperature, say 750 degree F or 400 degree C. Right. So and uh, so there's uh, no oxygen in the in the reaction you're doing without without, without air. Without oxygen. Yeah. Then you know only a tiny amount, uh, a fraction, only about 10 percent of the carbon will be converted to carbon dioxide, and 50 percent of the carbon will remain a uh, charcoal. And another 40% uh, will be remain in uh, as a byproduct we call the bio oil, which can be harvested and used as a, another renewable energy source. Mm-hmm. And so, how? Um, so, uh, are, I know this is an ancient uh, an ancient technique that was discovered in the pre-Columbian tribes from the Central Amazon. They they were doing this 1,500 years ago. Yes, we actually. Uh, we learned this le- lesson from the pre-Amazon people, and uh, an archaeological uh, event uh, disclosed uh, the fertile uh, charcoal carbon-rich and highly productive soil in the central Amazon basin. And later, uh, scientific studies uh, revealed that this fertile soil was uh, fertilized by the Amazon people one fifteen hundred years ago uh, with char produced by smoldering plant debris and uh, animal bones. Uh, so, so the char, the the fertilizer they made, the char they made fifteen hundred years ago, yes, was still working. Yes, the 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 soil is still highly productive even after one thousand years of. Crop cultivation without any other fertilization. Wow! Can 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 farmers do this themselves? Can they make this charcoal themselves? Or yes, and uh, on a farm scale, and it is very simple. And the the growers or the farmers just uh, pack the organic uh, residues into a metal container and heat it. Uh, uh, at like 300 or 400 degrees C until no visible uh, smoke are uh, emitted, then that charcoal is ready to apply. Huh. So uh, it's, there must be a kit they can buy or some sort of. Oh, they must know how to do this then. It's not very hard to do. It's, uh, it's very easy. And actually, you know, 2,000 years ago, the Chinese people started to make charcoal by themselves. By this kind of a process, we call it the smoldering or smothering or some you know paralysis. Right, right. It almost sounds like the method to make coke. How people yes. make coke. I don't mean the drinking kind <laughs> <laughs> either. Uh, well, so where do you go from here in this research? 
Um, currently, uh, we are uh, trying to extend this research from the lab uh, to the uh, field scale, and we are going to do some demonstrations and to look at the the, the long-term effect of charcoal fertilization on soil quality improvement and crop uh, productivity productivity enhancement. Hmm. So once succeed, we want to uh, encourage all the uh, uh, farmers and growers, uh, you know, uh, around the world to practice uh, the charcoal fertilization well, thank so you. to improve soil quality. Sounds like a simple thing to do. Yes. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Gao, for taking time to be with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, Ning Zing Gao, Assistant Professor in the Agricultural and Natural Resources Department at Delaware State University in Dover. We're going to take a short break and come back. We're going to talk about a new federal policy that opens up scientific research from the NIH, biomedical research, opens it up to the public, everybody to take a look at it. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the short break with Harold Varmus. Myra Flato. I'm Myra Flato. This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday from NPR News. This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday. I'm Myra Flato. Up next, a look at a new federal policy that could change the way scientists, at least those doing biomedical research, share their work. Starting this week, whenever a researcher funded by the National Institutes of Health submits a paper for publication, he or she must make sure that within a year, the paper goes into the NIH's online database, PubMed Central. Now, papers in PubMed Central are available free of charge to anyone who wants to read them, and this open access model is largely, largely supported by academic scientists and opposed by many publishers who make money charging subscription fees for access to the journal these articles appear in. There are lots of journals out there. Dr. Harold Varmus is a very familiar and respected name in science. He's been at the forefront of the open access movement. He helped start the Public Library of Science, which puts out several open access journals. He's here to tell us why this new policy is necessary and what else still needs to be done if biomedical science is to be true uh, open access. And if you'd like to talk about it, our number is 1-800-989-8255, 1-800-989-TALK. Dr. Varmus is the 1989 Nobel Laureate in Physiology or Medicine. And as I say, he's a co-founder and the chairman of the board of the Public Library of Science and president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Uh, welcome to back to Science Friday, Dr. Farmer. Thank you, Ira. Nice to hear your voice. Uh, uh, I, I just described the policy that went into effect. Did I get it right? Yeah, this Monday, yes. Um, I, I would only make one caveat, which yes. is it's, it's, you know, it's a great moment for biomedical science, for the public's uh, ability to get access to science, indeed, People who are listening to this show now who have an interest in science and have been in the past uh, limited in their ability to get access to what scientists are doing with their taxpayers' dollars now will have much, much, much greater access. But um, it's not true open access in the sense that uh, there's a del delay between the time that uh, a paper is sent to the NIH for posting it in this library that we call PubMed Central and the time that it will become available, a delay that could be as long as a year. 
and those of us who publish true open access journals, as we do at Public Library of Science, uh, make those papers available at the time of publication uh, mm -hmm. to everybody. But we can get back to that distinction. No, let's the main thing is that there yeah. are, you know, there are uh, now going to be roughly 80,000 papers a year that are that are that describe work supported by the 29 billion dollars that the NIH spends on research that will now be available within a year for everyone to look at. Well, so, so you must have had opposition. There must have been opposition oh, yeah. from the, the 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 standard journals on. Indeed, it. of course, the the library, um, what we call PubMed Central, basically a digital public library. Um, has been open since uh, the end of 1999 when I was at NIH a long time ago. Uh, and we lo launched that uh, as a kind of extension to something called PubMed. Now, almost anyone who has any contact with medical science, whether as a disease advocacy person or a healthcare worker or someone just interested in science, will have gone to PubMed and seen what the NIH has been providing for about 15 years, namely um, the authors, the titles, um, often the abstracts, uh, of uh, almost any paper published in any of the five to 6,000 legitimate journals that are out there. But what you can't see when you go to PubMed, at least you couldn't until this library was created, was the rest of the text, the, the data and the important stuff that you want to read. Uh, but we opened the library um, in um, the end of 1999 in the hopes that, uh, that journals would be willing to pro provide their primary research reports to the public, say six months or even a year after publication. At that point, uh, people who subscribe, uh, you know, would, mm -hmm. would if, if they have to wait six months to see it, they're not going to lose their subscriptions because right. uh, subscriptions are mainly held by uh, university libraries and by individual scientists who want to see the material immediately as soon as it's published. So a uh, delay of six months was put in to uh, allay the concerns of, of journals that uh, were concerned about uh, losing their subscribers, which is a legitimate concern. After mm -hmm. all, it costs money to, uh, to publish uh, papers, to have them reviewed, to have them copy edited, to uh, use, put together a publication process. And, uh, but we were surprised to find that very few journals um, were initially willing to provide their six-month-old or one-year-old papers for the public to read. So a number of us who were enthusiastic about the, uh, the library then um, founded um, a, uh, a true open access publishing house called Public Library of Science, where we show the public that uh, it actually is possible to make uh, literature available immediately. Indeed, any of your listeners can go right now to plos.org and see all the papers ever published by the Public Library of Science journals, of which there are several. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to pay our our copy editors and our and our um, um, our professional editors and uh, our software engineers, just like anybody else, and we do that by asking that uh, that um, authors use their um, their grant money, uh, which is a very small fraction, roughly one percent of their total research money, to pay for the cost of a of a publication, uh, and uh, that allows papers to be published immediately. Mm -hmm. um, but with the growth of the open access movement and the recognition of how important it is for scientists and members of the general public, reporters like yourself and uh, your listeners and uh, healthcare workers and advocacy people and uh, folks who do science in developing countries, people who are doing science at small institutions that can't afford to subscribe to all these journals, um, like getting the papers even if they get them several months later. Uh, and Congress has been responsive to this and has asked NIH to, uh, to develop a policy that would make sure that, uh, that the work that the NIH and the public pay for 
actually appears in the public domain. And that's what's happening now. Now it's a requirement as of Monday that all um, investigators who have published, uh, have uh, a paper accepted that describes mm-hmm. work that was funded by NIH dollars will be obliged to provide those uh, manuscripts to PubMed Central to be released um, within a year. 1-800-989-8255, talking with uh, Harold Varmus. Let's go to uh, Michael in Buffalo. Hi, Michael. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I um, I have a question. I, I work at a large research university in Buffalo, New York, um, and I wonder what happens to the process of peer review when we go to this kind of public access. I mean, the journals well, me, and, that, that's a, that's and an the way question. we work. Glad you asked it because you understand the question. Yes. Of course, we all believe peer review is an extremely important process of the uh, part of the process of publication. Uh, in the case of the the new NIH policy that uh, that requires that all papers published in any kind of journal, whether it's a it's a traditional subscription-based for-profit journal or whether it's in a new open access journal, be available to the public within, within a year. Um, the true open access journals um, also practice peer review. Indeed, some of the journals that we publish at Public Library of Science have extraordinarily high rejection rates and, uh, uh, and some have much lower rejection rates and they have uh, uh, of, of reputations that are that uh, are in some sense dependent upon our demands for extremely high quality. So we have a quality machine. The the issue here with respect to true open access, making papers available to everybody at the time of at the time of publication, is uh, is a difference that requires a change in the business model. All publishers need revenue. They have to pay the people who put the journals together, whether they're online journals or whether they're both online and on paper. And uh, the true open access journals that can afford to provide their content immediately get that money by asking authors to provide a, a, a modest fee that is paid by, by their funding agency at the time of publication. Other, other journals um, uh, uh, obtain their money through, uh, through subscriptions that are mostly uh, paid for by, uh, by working scientists uh, mm. and by institutions. Let's go to Dan in San Jose. Hi, Dan. Hi, how's it going? Hi great, uh, great article. I'm glad you're doing this. Thank you. Thank you. My question is regarding all that archival stuff that we still won't be able to reach. Is there any possible yeah, exploration into maybe down the road compelling that the publication be done in open access journals if you receive NIH funding so that the journals themselves have some motivation to go back and open their archives to us? I love this question. Indeed, uh, what's happening on all university campuses and indeed at all libraries is that old material is going off to warehouses uh, far from the, the, the side of the action. And if you want to see a paper that I wrote in the 1970s, which to me doesn't seem so long ago, it's very hard to get. And most of those papers have not been uh, digitized so that they're available. But it's not hard to do that. And in fact, some journals have done it, um, and uh, that's kind of a wonderful treat in, in PubMed Central. If you go and look at a, a journal, look for an article published by the American Society of Microbiology 20 or 30 years ago, it's there and it pops right up. And we could do that, probably not with all journals. It is, it is somewhat expensive, but this can be done and mm-hmm. uh, at a relatively modest cost. When you consider that uh, literally hundreds of billions of dollars worth of research. Our scientific legacy is now very difficult to get access to. Well, our listeners are on a roll, so let's stay with them. Heather in Washington, D.C. Hi, Heather. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just calling to ask, it sounds like from what Dr. Varmus is saying, that 
this research can be available even faster than a year. And I work with an advocacy group in Washington that's very interested in um, speeding up this process. So I'm wondering if you have any suggestions for what members of the public can do to make sure that this research can be available to the public even sooner than one Great. year. Well, that's a good question. Indeed, uh, most of us believe that, uh, that, that uh, the journals that depend on subscriptions would not be hurt by a reduction in the interval to less than, less than six months, even as short as, as two to three months. Uh, there's data that says that people look at their, uh, the journals they subscribe to for a couple of months, and after that they just seek the articles by searching on, on the Internet. Mm-hmm. So um, I think a, a reduction could safely be made, and I think the way to do that is to, is to have people who really have a, a, a need for access, uh, healthcare workers and disease advocacy groups and teachers of science in the schools, uh, go to their members of Congress and say, we'd like to see this uh, interval shortened. Ultimately, uh, you, can't, you can't shorten it uh, to zero uh, without changing the business model, because journals do need to have some revenue. Most journals, people are often surprised to learn, do extremely well in the current system. The average profit margin is uh, as much as 30 to 40 percent. So uh, there's no doubt that we can make the whole process somewhat less expensive, but we still have to cover costs. So we can't make that, we can't reduce the interval to, mm-hmm. to zero unless we shift to a true open access business model in which, uh, in which authors are paying. And I should say in response to the question that, that the NIH is not the only funding agency that has instituted this kind of policy. Uh, you can imagine that if you were a funder of science anywhere in the world, you would want the results that you paid for to be out there for everyone to not just to see, but to work with. And indeed, the way in which one works with uh, the information is extraordinarily important in this day of, uh, in which we use the computer to mine research data for n- new ways to think about things. And the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, the Wellcome Trust of England, the, the, the Research Councils of UK, um, the European Research Council have all endorsed policies which in general mandate uh, uh, availability of, of the work they paid for within six months rather than a year of publication. Let's go to Sandra in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Hi, Sandra. Hi. Hi there. Go ahead. Um, I'm a patient. Um, I've got an orphan disease, and for years I've been trying to, you know, find information, and I always run into, you know, articles that I have to pay for, and I've actually subscribed to certain things to, just to get those articles. But I wonder if maybe doctors could provide a password to patients with, you know, rare diseases and maybe we could access articles that are pertinent to our disease, you know, early on. And, and you know, I don't know. That's interesting great. idea. No, it's yeah. an interesting idea. Um, at the Public Library of Science, for example, we are trying to um, create uh, sites within PLOS.org that uh, will be places where patients with specific diseases can go and get information. There are already some sites out there. Uh, high Q and a site run by the Alzheimer's Association called the uh, uh, Alz Forum. Uh, these are places where patients can go and see information, but you're right, uh, until the information is let go by the copyright holder, uh, a mm-hmm. publisher with a subscription base, uh, in general it's very difficult to get those papers. Sometimes there's there's a special exemption made, but uh, this should, I think the thing you need to push for here, I think it's going to be hard to credential people to get access to certain papers at, certain t- at early times, but I think what I'd like uh, disease advocacy groups to do is to, is to recognize the power of the, of the Internet to, to um, bring all the information that you have mm-hmm. paid for as a taxpayer into the public domain earlier, and that means moving the, the delay to access 
to a, a, a shorter period, and uh, advocating for true open access publications right. like uh, like Public Library of Science. We, uh, we're talking with Dr. Harold Varmus this hour and talk of the Nation Science Friday from NPR News. Uh, I have time for one more uh, one more quick call. Let's see if Dan in Silver Spring, Maryland. Hi, Dan. Uh, hi. I uh, have a quick question about publishing some of the negative results. I mean, once we're, you know, NIH is funding a study, wouldn't it make it more efficient to require some of these researchers to publish some of the results that didn't work and maybe yeah. cut some of the research process down yeah, so for that's, that's all a, the other researchers uh, out there. All right, that's a very important point. Uh, one of the things that we have done at Public Library of Science and other other publishers, uh, whether subscription-based or not, have thought about this, and that is to provide an opportunity for uh, commentary on published papers so that people can add uh, informal reports that are online and uh, and make note of either um, altered versions of the same experiment or negative results. Um, the negative result issue is particularly important in the public health domain with respect to clinical trials. Most clinical trials that are reported tend to report positive findings, and that's because they um, have a direct impact on healthcare. But it's important to know what didn't work as well. Yeah. Uh, we started a journal at Public Library of Science uh, for uh, called Clinical Trials, and uh, um, and we tried to encourage um, both pharmaceutical companies and academics to send in their negative findings. We didn't get a huge number of papers, frankly, and uh, I think uh, there is congressional interest in this topic, and uh, I think there simply has to be more public debate, so I appreciate the question to accentuate the the importance of finding some way to to tabulate and make publicly available results from expensive trials that uh, told us something, but not something that uh, that leads to a change in healthcare. And, and in this age of the internet, where we have instant blogs, and you know people comment about everything they see on on the web, you know there are places for people to make a comment. Could this not be also a trend in the research field? Once something is published, you can get commentary immediately. Absolutely. So Feedback if you go on to PLOS.org, Ira, and you look at papers that we've published in a journal called PLOS One, you will see an opportunity for you to make comments about papers mm-hmm. and uh, for the authors to respond to you. Uh, this requires a, a cultural change among scientists. They're not usually used to doing this in public. They may ask a question at a meeting, but they're not used to, uh, to making a written comment that goes on the web and is uh, in some sense cataloged. But we are trying to encourage people to use the web and web-based publishing, especially in the open access mode, to, to nurture this conversation among scientists and other interested members of the public. Uh, it provides a kind of post-publication review. It allows uh, some the building of, uh, of communities of like-minded scientists who are interested in the same problem. And I think there's tremendous opportunity here that we, uh, because we're a somewhat uh, tradition-bound group of people, we haven't really milked fully the potential of the Internet to not just display our results, but to make use of them and engage in conversations about them. Well, I'm going to try to make good use of your goodwill, uh, Dr. Varmus. Can you stay with us for a few more minutes? Of course, right sure, sure. the break. We're talking uh, to Dr. Harold Varmus, who is a co-founder and chairman of the Board of the Public Library of Science and also president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York. 1-800-989-8255, talking about uh, uh, a terrific issue, that is the public access to research. Your opinions, stay with us. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm Ira Flato. This is Talk of the Nation Science Friday from NPR News. You're listening to Talk of the Nation Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking with Dr. Harold Varmus uh, about uh, 
publicly unleashing those research papers earlier, right, immediately online. But uh, just a quick reminder that uh, next Wednesday, Neil Conan and Talk of the Nation will be broadcasting live from the uh, museum again. And they're going to be looking back at the glory days of CBS News, the Tiffany Network, with gets uh, Bob Schieffer and Roger, and Roger Budd. And if you'd like to be in the, in the audience and, and you're in the Washington area on Wednesday and you want to jo- join the live audience, send an email to talk at npr.org. That's talk at npr.org uh, with tickets. Put tickets in the subject line if you'd like to come and sit in in the audience. Uh, Dr. Varmus, where do you see uh, do, you, do you think that we're just going to – it's a matter of time till we're going to collapse in, until uh, that one year is up, maybe six months, three months, and be uh, everything well, will think, be immediate? Uh, quite a number of papers that get submitted to PubMed Central will be posted uh, much earlier than a year. Um, that will require negotiation between um, authors and journals. And some journals, of course, many are already compliant with the request that uh, that their articles go directly to PubMed Central. Yeah. And uh, so there are many journals that are already po- posting their articles within six months, uh, and I think there will be many more because, you know, it's in the interest of authors to be sure that their material is available for other scientists to see as easily as possible. And after all, scientists are funny kinds of authors. We, uh, we want, want to be read. We're not getting paid. Yeah. We want to be famous. Yeah. We uh, <laughs> give our articles to journals for free. Uh, we, um, we work for those journals as reviewers and as editors. Uh, we turn over the copyright. Um, this is true of, of the subscription-based journals. In the case of the open access journals, you, you're allowed to retain your copyright. But nevertheless, no one gets paid, and yeah. uh, we just want to be read. Yeah. So the it's not just the agencies that want the work out there. The scientists want it, too. And the scientists, I think, will learn, especially as PubMed Central becomes a bigger and bigger library, just how useful it is to go there. And they'll want their material to be up yeah. as soon as possible. You know, I think it's going to help a lot. It's going to help libraries. You know, they oh, they can't afford to pay for all these journals. And people will come in and say, where can I learn about this? And now they can just open their web browser and send them to the spot. Exactly. So re- I'm glad you brought up the library issue because – one of the motivations for doing this is the increasing costs of of, uh, of uh, subscription-based journals in uh, in biomedical scientists. The scientists, sciences. The reason that the profit margins are so large is because some of these uh, journals get sold for as much as uh, several thousand dollars a year uh, at, uh, at to uh, libraries that serve um, uh, significant numbers of scientists and. Uh, one way to get around that, of course, is to make the stuff all available yeah. um, at uh, in, in, in a much simpler way by having the cost covered by the scientists. Right. Who let me let me ask you a related question that uh, that it came in from the internet on Second Life from Snilvoom, who asked a very interesting question: If you're going to have more lay people coming to these to these articles, can you write more lay language versions? Of the yeah, papers. Well, that's a, that's a good question. At Public Library of Science, we have done that for many of our articles. Uh, I'm not sure it's a, a, a version that everyone in the world yeah. can read, but certainly anyone with a reasonable science background can read a simplified version. And, and uh, the only caveat I would issue here is that it's expensive to do that. Yeah. Most scientists are not very good at it, and uh, you can hire people who are science writers for the public who can translate uh, even complex information into into accessible information but it does cost additional money and that's got to be paid for somehow put it put it in the grant proposal well it's part of the grant proposal and then many many uh, many journals will um, ask that uh, at least a summary of the work in 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 accessible language yeah. be provided i think that's a very very useful thing to do yeah uh, you know frankly 
I can't read everything, <laughs> at least not with sophistication, that's written in, in even my own field, let alone physics and chemistry. So uh, there is a problem in translating science into a uh, language that everybody can well, read. It's a problem shared even by scientists. Well, you're very good at it, Dr. Varmus. So I want to thank you very time for taking time to do it again for us. Well, that's, I appreciate you, Ira, for, ta- for taking this, uh, the, the, the chance to um, let this message get out to the public. Thank you very much. Good. Dr. Harold Varmus is co-founder and chairman of the Board of the Public Library of Science and president of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center here in New York. Up next, kids with weight problems, depression, anxiety, ADHD may have one thing in common, and it's turning out that might be a history of sleep problems. Several studies in the current issue of the journal Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine looked at sleep disorders in very young children, everything from not getting enough sleep to problems like sleep apnea, parenting behaviors that influence their children's sleep, and how these sleep disorders are connected to health problems later on in life. Here to help us sort out uh, these studies, figure out what they mean and what signs parents should be looking for if they suspect that their child has a sleep disorder, is the author of an editorial in the same journal, uh, Michelle Kawa is, de- uh, is a fellow in adult and pediatric sleep medicine at uh, Stanford University in Stanford, California. She joins us today from the campus there. Uh, uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Kawa. Thank you. How did, did I get your last name right? Yes. <laughs> I mix up so many names. Uh, thank you for, for being uh, kind about that. Well, I think that par- people probably never suspected that sleep disorders could cause so many of these things in their children. It definitely is a new thought process or thinking uh, process in the you know probably in the last five to ten years or so mm-hmm. and and how much sleep should our kids get so you know it all depends, but on average we look at uh, we break down the age differences so for uh, kids that are five years old or less, we expect that they should be sleeping at least eleven hours or greater. And kids between 5 and 10 mm-hmm. years old should be sleeping around t- at least 10 hours or more. And kids that are 10 years or older should be sleeping around 9 hours or more. So that's the general yeah. uh, scale that we look at. But mm-hmm. obviously every kid is different. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, and the, the articles, the studies in this journal show that sleep problems very early in life can lead to a variety of health problems. Let's go through some of what those health problems might be. Give us an idea, sure. a rundown. Please. So we want to focus on uh, child sleep disorders. And when we talk about disorders, we think about uh, not just the physiologic disorders, such as the common sleep apnea as well as restless leg syndrome that we see in children, but also behavioral disturbances during sleep that can lead to further disorders or problems later on in life. So we want to so the the disorders that we are looking at are you know sleep sleep apnea later on mm-hmm. in life, uh, restless leg syndrome that continues on in life, mm-hmm. as well as emotional disturbances including difficulty in school, difficulty with homework, difficulty with uh, interactions with other kids as well as siblings and the whole mm. family situation. Um, also, there's a correlation with sleep problems and development of ADHD or the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder syndrome. Hmm. as well as other 
metabolic syndromes such as obesity and cardiovascular consequences later on in life. Do we know why if you don't sleep enough you get you get obesity? Do we know any of these physiological connections? Well, several studies that have been done in the past have found a a definite correlation between sleep disruption or sleep disorders in in the pediatric population and later on obesity mm-hmm. um, in the um, early adult life and as well as you know the adult life. But we are not sure exactly what is that correlation. There's uh, several studies that was that were done on several hormones that that we have found. Um, one of them is called leptin. Mm-hmm. The other one is you know growth hormone. Some of these hormones are diurnal, which means that they're secreted uh, in episodic, you know, twice during the 24-hour cycle. And they are important for, you know, growth and uh, maturation. The leptin hormone specifically is an appetite stimulant. And some studies have shown that there is an increase in the leptin hormone secretion with sleep deprivation. So in essence, if more leptin hormone is secreted, it could stimulate the appetite and therefore it can lead to obesity. Mm-hmm. There was also there was also some association between uh, kids who got less sleep and spent more hours watching TV, right? Having a higher risk of being overweight. Exactly. One of the studies that w- that was uh, done in this particular uh, issue of the archives journal looked specifically at that, and uh, that study found that kids who sleep less than twelve hours, and this is particularly uh, kids that are around three years old who sleep less than 12 hours a day and also watch TV more than two hours a day have a higher correlation, uh, what we call a higher odds ratio of or Mm -hmm. chance of developing obesity five times more than the average kid Mm -hmm. who doesn't have that, who who sleeps more than 12 hours a day or who watches TV less than two hours a day. And we don't know why that is the case for sure, but it may be that, um, you know, if kids who watch more TV obviously are less... um, functional they have you know they have they spend less time engaging in, in activities and uh, that in itself can mm-hmm. predispose to obesity mm-hmm. what signs what signs should we parents be looking for if we think our our kids might have a sleep disorder sure so as a parent i would encourage that um, the parents pay attention to daytime behavior as well as nighttime behavior. In the daytime, you want to watch for signs of irritability. The child could be very irritable during school in the daycare center at home. The child can be very hyperactive, more so than other kids. Uh, The child can also be very sleepy or tired or just fatigued throughout the day. Uh, or even even, uh, aggressive behavior, aggression towards other kids or, you know, other siblings at home. Um, Difficulty with homework, uh, difficulty, concentration, uh, those are, are signs in the daytime that I would look for. Mm-hmm. Now, it is also very important to look for nighttime symptoms uh, during sleep. So, for instance, if the child is having restless sleep, you know, the child is all over the bed. Um, if the child wakes up throughout the night, if the child has a hard time falling asleep. Um, other physical signs such as snoring, um, gasping or choking for air, uh, intermittently stop breathing throughout the night, uh, bedwetting beyond the expected age. Um, if the child, you know, has night terrors, you know, wake up screaming, confused, and and cannot go back to sleep. Mm-hmm. If the child sweats a lot during the night, um, if the child, um, 
you know, coughs a lot. Um, these are all signs that the mm-hmm. parents should watch for during, you know, doing sleep at night. Mm-hmm. Talking about sleep disorders this hour and talk of the Nation of Science Friday from NPR News with uh, Dr. M- uh, Michelle Cao, who is a fellow in adult and pediatric sleep medicine at Stanford. Um, when you say get enough sleep, is that is that let's say let's say we're talking about ten hours? Is that a straight ten sure. hours, or is that f- eight hours and then a two-hour nap in the afternoon, or an hour nap here? Can you make up for that sleep that way, or, or, or do we need to have that straight section of sleep? No, I mean we we think to you know we we think in terms of uh, you know most kids spend at least you know two-thirds of their time sleeping. And so these hours are, can be broken up in naps as well as, mm-hmm. you know, the, the actual nighttime hours. So it doesn't have to be straight sleep. However, the naps and the duration of naps and when the child naps will influence the nighttime sleep. one 800 Let's see if we can get a quick call in here from uh, Carl in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hi. Yeah, hi there. I just wanted to ask the doctor what uh, she thought of the connection between ADHD and the lack of sleep. I know that... Um, the class of medications, you know, are uh, to treat ADHD are generally stimulant-type medications. Um, if there's a, a lack of rest to the brain uh, that would trigger such a, uh, a condition, is is the uh, you know treating it with a, a stimulant medication indicative that it's hmm. a sleep problem? Hmm. Good question. Hi, Carl. So. Sleep apnea or sleep disruption uh, in a child, the symptoms are are very closely uh, similar to symptoms of ADHD or ADD in a child. For instance, a child who doesn't sleep well or has sleep problems, uh, either whether it's physiologic or you know just has disrupted sleep, will a lot of times in the daytime instead of feeling sleepy or fatigued, will actually overcompensate and become very hyperactive and have difficulty concentrating, difficulty doing homework, um, you know, interacting with other children. So those symptoms are very similar to ADHD. So what I've, we found is that if a child exhibits those symptoms before we can diagnose the child with ADHD or ADD, we need to make sure that there is no sleep-related disorder um, that has been undiagnosed in a child first because the medications for ADHD or ADD obviously are stimulants, and they are not what we call benign medications without side effects. Um, so my, recommenda- my recommendation is that if, if a, a child has been diagnosed with ADD or ADHD, please make sure that the child does not have an underlying undiagnosed sleep disorder. Mm-hmm. So make sure, yeah, yeah make sure you've, you've, you've paid a close enough attention, I guess, by paying attention to those symptoms that you were saying at home. Exactly, because the, you know, the, Treat the underlying sleep disorder is um, much better off for the child than putting he or she on a stimulant that uh, that does mm-hmm. have a lot of side effects. Do you think that people have been kids have been misdiagnosed this way because they physicians maybe I not have been savvy enough to know this? Well, I definitely think so, and I'm not sure that it's a physician's fault. But you know, mm-hmm. these are findings that we found in the last uh, five to ten years or so. That um, you know, this is all new findings, and um, I, I believe that a lot of uh, Children who are now young adults or adults that have always had this diagnosis of ADHD and ADD actually have had sleep apnea or sleep-related disorders, you know, all along have, and have been misdiagnosed. That could be a lot of kids. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so they've, they, and, and they're getting all this unnecessary medication then. Exactly. 
Uh, uh, is it ever too late to go back and re-diagnose somebody that way? Definitely not. I mean, we have a lot of, uh, you know, young adults or adults who come in with also, and now the, you know, the sleep disruption or sleep disorders have now become more apparent because they get, yeah. sleep disorders only get worse as you get older. And so they come in for actual sleep issues now. And so we found that we've diagnosed a lot of sleep problems and, um, you know, it, it does, you know, take away their, uh, does help or resolve their ADD or ADHD hmm. diagnosis. Well, that's, that's the, that's. The great takeaway from today, if nothing else, from this from our segment today. I want to thank you very much for taking time to be with us. Sure. Dr. Michelle Cow is a fellow in adult and pediatric sleep medicine at Stanford University in Stanford, California. Greg Smith composed our theme music. We had help today from NPR librarian Kim Molesky and engineer Don Davis in Stanford. If you have comments or questions, and you'd like to write it the classic mail way, right? You can send your letters with the stamp on it to Science Friday, 4 West 43rd Street, Room 306, New York, New York, 10036. Surf over to our website, The New Way. Leave us an email at sciencefriday.com. We're also podcasting and blogging, and there's some, there's some videos up there of uh, past guests of Science Friday and videos that you're, you, you've been sending to us. Keep those videos coming. We're putting them up there. Also, um, there are back editions, and you can sign up for our new podcast if you're not already a member. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York.